The government has clearly lost control of the economy. We are looking at a Conservative majority of 86. Why is the Prime Minister making a bad situation worse for working people by hammering them with a cut to universal credit and a tax rise? I actually think that this is a win-win. It's, a, it's a, an open goal for this trust, really. Will you Who shut is up, man? You said it on the record. You said and, you want to right, And just to cut it off something that you bringing you the stories behind the headlines. You're listening to Politics Unboxed. You absolutely are listening to Politics Unboxed. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. It has just gone past 2pm here on Wednesday, the 14th of December, 2022, and you are joining me for the final time this term. Yes, we've gone through... An entire term of politics unboxed all the way through from December round here. Or rather from September round here to December. I was going to say December to January, but that's when I'm not going to be on the air. So don't try and tune in between two and four on Wednesdays for that. But we've got a cracker of a final show for you here. Some would say a bit of a Christmas cracker. Because whilst we'll be taking the first hour and a bit in order to talk about the biggest news stories of the week and of the... well last few weeks potentially it's going to get rather Christmassy towards the end of the show so with that being said let's dive straight in to how you can get involved in the show today express yourself with expression hotline call 01392 tell us what you want to hear we might even get your voice on the airwaves so pick up the phone and get ringing there we go. Express yourself with Expression Hotline 01392723568 is the number to call. And today we really do want to hear your voices on the radio if you have a favoured news story, a, a most important news story of the year, maybe, that you want to get involved uh, because it's all go, go, go. Um, we've got lots to talk about. Mick Lynch has been in the news recently, uh, talking about strikes. And uh, here we are, talking about how the Lynch stole Christmas. If you read the, the Daily Mail and other newspapers of that variety who have that uh, type of headline running, or... Potentially, how the nursing strike is a badge of shame. Uh, According to the Labour leader, that is how the Prime Minister should be taking this uh, little, well, I say little, this massive um, area of, of, of how this disruption is going to happen. Um, other, other news we've seen recently, inflation has dropped a little bit. Uh, so we're in a period now officially called disinflation, which is where it's still going up, uh, but it's going up slower than it was before. So inflation was at about 11.1% in October. It's now 10.7%. Not massively uh, not massively reduced, I think it's fair to say. Uh, but the petrol price is falling. Something else has to go up, doesn't it? And it is the cost of alcohol increasing at its fastest rate since 1991, which is amazing. I mean, uh, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about on that front. Um, 
It was, of course, Promises Questions as well today, talking about deaths in the channel in the morning, talking about how, well, the, the strikes dominated the dispatch box dispute between the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition, Sakir Starmer, uh, with Sunak being accused of going into hibernation over the NHS. So I'm sure we will bring you all of that and more on today's episode of Politics Unboxed, which, as I say, the last one we're going to be doing live on Expression FM for a little while, which I know is a shame. I I love being on um, on the radio live, speaking to you guys, getting into into your sort of radios and and smart speakers or however you're playing Expression FM available currently online, but. You never know. There might be an FM or DAB route for you soon. So uh, keep your, I was going to say, keep your eyes peeled, but sort of keep your ears tuned in to how you can listen to Expression FM because things are going to be on the change around soon. Um, Let's start today's show, though, because there's plenty to talk about. And we're going to start, of course, with the issue dominating the political agenda right now, which is the issue of strike activity. Now, this is happening all across various different sectors. We've seen it in the rail industry. We've seen it in the university and colleges union. So university lecturers actually going out on strike, which I'm sure we'll be able to bring you a, a bit of a a bit of a report about because we do have several of those in the system, um, but also we're seeing it on, as I say, the railways and hospitals, in bag workers at Heathrow who've threatened to put holidays at risk. Uh, we've also seen plenty of of other areas under threat. I say under threat. Some would say the the very fact that they have to go on strike proves they were already under threat because otherwise the workers would be able to do a better job, maybe a more fulfilling job. So let's have a look at some of the different angles people are coming at this strike action from because, as I say, Mick Lynch has been on the offensive against Labour and the Conservative Party. Leader of the RMT Union, that is the uh, Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers Union, so they deal with uh, a lot of different train workers, people on boats, anyone in the the transport industry has the ability to join the RMT. There is another group called ASLEF, who are specifically around train drivers, but a lot of other workers on the railways, they are coming under the umbrella of the RMT. Now, Mr Lynch has criticised the government and has also attacked Labour's prevarication on workers' rights. He's called the current pay offer for union members ridiculously low. Now, this is what the the government have been saying. They've been offering pay rises to members. Uh, Mick Lynch says that the area around 4% is what has been offered. The government haven't disputed that, with inflation pushing 11%, and at times has been in sharp instances at well over 15%. 4% doesn't quite look like it's going to cut it. Now, Mick Lynch, unable to say what would actually be a suitable level of uh, pay increase but I don't think you should be expecting somebody who's able to who's looking to negotiate on behalf of members 
um, to actually put things out in in public. Because if let's say Mick Lynch is is pushing for I don't know, I'm going to pluck an arbitrary number out of the sky here. Let's say he's pushing for fifteen percent. Um, if he says he's willing to concede for ten percent on BBC One on a on a political talk show, then suddenly the government are able to say, well, hang on, no, if he's willing to push for that in in public, what's he willing to give away in private? And they'll push harder. So I don't think it's um, it's, it's ridiculous of McLynch to to not put a number out there. Um, the government, however, have been remarkably sort of disingenuous, really. Uh, the government, sticking by this line, the government is putting record funding into the health service. Well, yeah, but when costs are going up, the the record funding is, is required. This inflation that, yes, has been caused by the coronavirus pandemic, yes, has been caused by Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine, but also is a legacy of 12 years of conservative economic mis- mismanagement, specifically in relation to this uh, peak in inflation down to about, what, 12 days of economic craziness around that disastrous mini-budget of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, um, both of whom have indicated that they're going to be running again for Parliament in the next general election, which... I mean, wow. That's that's quite something. I didn't expect that, if I was being brutally honest. Now, to have a look at some of the other areas um, where Labour, the Conservatives and the unions are all not quite singing from the same hymn sheet. Mick Lynch uh, saying, The rich don't create the wealth in this country, saying the government should be redistributing wealth from the top Labour have been calling in various forms for a a style of wealth tax. The Labour leadership on the front bench, very keen not to mention the word tax, really, um, which I guess has been a successful policy for them before. Uh, Just not mentioning the word tax seems to make people forget that there will be some form of of tax policy. Uh, It's certainly... Sort of the the inverse of how John Smith tried to win the 1992 general election uh, by putting out that massive, fully costed tax and spend document when he was shadow chancellor. Labour's alternative plan for government spooked off many of the voters. Whereas in in 1997 you had Gordon Brown in the shadow chancellor role saying, "Well, look, we'll carry on." Uh, now the Labour Party don't have the option of just saying we'll carry on the economic policy of the Conservatives because they will be crucified. Um, but I think they are coming to an opinion now that the rich aren't the ones creating the wealth in this country and some form of redistributive, at least wealth tax, rather than income tax changes, wealth tax changes could very well be in the uh, the Labour manifesto. Uh, also, Liz Kendall, who was appearing on BBC Two's Politics Live show, saying the Labour Party want to scrap tax-free status for public schools and redistribute wealth more evenly. Great. Um, that still isn't very many policies. And when you're trying to attack a government for, for policy failure, it, it does normally help to have some form of policy to challenge them with. Now, that's not always the case, and I, I do definitely think that the government should be doing more in this situation, but in this circumstance, it does look like the Labour Party are being rather successfully backed and manoeuvred into a corner 
on both sides. Uh, the government playing the, the political game, the union's just saying, well, give us the support then, um, in order to make them look like they're stuck in the middle of a difficult situation, which they undoubtedly are. The Labour Party historically very uh, very supportive of trade unions has been sort of distancing itself from those uh, from those areas, but I mean it's it's very difficult for these Labour front bench figures to be able to sort of well what's the word tread that line nice and and carefully without spooking off or what they fear will spook off Middle England. Um, Now, I don't know whether this strategy is going to be successful from Keir Starmer. We know that the public have seemingly been largely on the side of the striking workers so far. And given that we've seen this action happen on the railways, on the buses, highway workers, baggage handlers, health workers, uh, nurses... Royal Mail, and a heck of a lot more industries rumoured to be, well, certainly about to put strike action to the ballot. Whether or not it, it, it succeeds in their ballot, we will have to wait and see. But at the moment, it looks like the support is with the, the striking workers rather than the government on the whole. Now, that will change something we've we've certainly seen over the course of of the history of strike action is that the more something goes on for without um well without a resolution the more both sides get tainted with the well why the heck can't you just solve it problem now that's more of a problem for for the government because of course you know the government are reliant on the favour of the public in order to keep them in office. Whereas if you are a train worker or a railway worker, for example, you don't actually have to worry about the favour of the public in order to keep your job unless it becomes so toxic that no one wants to use the trains anymore. So that's that's where the strikers are in a, a decent position. Um, now, the, the government have been scrambling on, on all fronts at responding that They've engaged with all unions. Starmer's not strong enough to stand up to them, said Rishi Sunak during Prime Minister's Question Time. Starmer doesn't have to stand up to them at the moment. I, I don't understand this. Well, I understand it completely from a political sense. But the, the government trying to paint the unions as the paymaster generals of the Labour Party. Um, no. That's Yes, there is a, a funding arrangement, but if... If the Conservative Party want to start throwing allegations about where the money that funds a party comes from, they ought to be very careful when they look at uh, who's in the House of Lords on the Conservative benches. But also, it's not Keir Starmer's fight at the moment. Keir Starmer is not a union spokesperson. He's not a government spokesperson. So, quite frankly, Keir Starmer doesn't have to stand up to the unions or for the unions from a very cynical point of view, he can just sit there and play the Labour Party side, which I'd imagine he's more than capable of doing. Um, but for, for Rishi Sunak to stand there and never answer a question, just deflect, God, he's filling the role of Prime Minister just how he's been taught, hasn't he? Deflect, deflect, deflect. It's like an episode of 
yes minister meets the thick of it because you've got all the shouty sweary ranting in the background but then you've also got the the sort of cool calm suave yes i'm a i'm a government minister and and you can listen to what i say but also no because if you actually listen to what i've said it might not make any sense um it it really is quite a quite a shame in my opinion, this is the cynical nature with which I'm now sort of attacking government. Um, but it really does seem to be, you know, just the, the the way things are currently. It's a bit of a basket case. We'll play that song later. Uh, I've been I've been looking for a, a good song to play next, and I think basket case is quite a quite a good one. Um, but also, let's have another further look at some of the other areas around the strikes. And we'll have a dive into the Royal College of Nurses, who are bringing their members out on strike. Nurses in England, Wales and Northern Ireland are set to strike on the 15th and 20th of December. So day one being tomorrow, after two days of industrial action was announced by the Royal College of Nursing. So that'll be the RCN. If I refer to something as the RCN, it will be the Royal College of Nursing. And that's the union that deals with nurses, it will surprise you to learn, in the United Kingdom. Now, the union's been calling for a pay rise of 19.2%. The government says this is completely unaffordable and says it has met independent recommendations on pay. A meeting between the RCN and Steve Barclay, who is the health secretary, although one of the recent revolving doors of, of health secretaries. I think he was briefly health secretary in that sort of midnight appointments process of Boris Johnson back when Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid both resigned. And then he went round appointing Nadim Zahawi as Chancellor, Michelle Donnellan as education secretary to replace Zahawi, and then Steve Barclay at health it was quite funny that by the end of the next day, two of them had both told the Prime Minister to go, Nadim Zahawi in private, Michelle Donnellan very much in, in public. But that's by the by. Um, at the meeting between the RCN and Health Secretary Steve Barclay, it didn't really go very far. The, the talks ended in deadlock. The RCN condemned a belligerence on the part of government ministers for refusing to discuss pay. So this isn't even refusing to just accept pay demands, it's refusing to discuss pay. Now, the head of the RCM, Pat Cullen, has said those strikes will definitely go ahead because there was no discussion around pay, which is, well, meaning that, and I quote here from Ms Cullen, we haven't come out with one single brown penny. And Ms Cullen had previously said strikes could be paused if the health secretary seriously negotiated over pay. Now, the government are are saying, look, we'll continue to engage on non-pay-related issues, but that's not listening. It's like if I walked up to, I don't know, um, a a complaints person and said, look, I have a complaint about these these three things. I I think the, I don't know, let's talk about my landlord. Uh, let's talk about anyone talking up to a landlord saying, look, it's too cold because the heating system's broken. Um, I don't think we're very secure because you haven't paid for the the new lock on the gate. And also, uh, I'd 
like to talk about a rent reduction. If he said, look, I'll I'll talk to you about two of those things, but I absolutely won't discuss the third, well, then that's not listening to the issues that are happening. Um, it's It's really just not how you resolve an issue. And Ms. Cullen says that pay is fundamental to this dispute between the RCN and the government. Um, and and I quote here that, that not discussing it was nothing short of disrespectful to our profession. The government closed their books and walked away from the nursing profession this afternoon. That being, um, I believe, two days ago, the talks between the union and, um, well, and uh, the, uh, the, the health secretary, sorry, I was going to say the union and the RCN there, uh, when the union and the government occurred. So this could have been avoided, this could have been averted, and we also know that nurses in Wales took an extra strike day today. That's uh, when their nurse strike has begun. Um, this really is quite a tense situation for the government, but on a personal level, this is very distressing for people who are already suffering with a backlog from COVID, but also from, as the I believe it's the King Report has suggested, a, a decade and more of conservative neglect. Let's listen to a little bit of Prime Minister's Question Time here from Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. If I can get the clip to play. Come on. It's nearly there. Sort of buffering its way through, a little bit like... There he there goes again, pretending everything is fine. Try telling that to those on waiting lists or those that can't afford to pay for a next-day GP appointment. After 12 years of Tory failure, winter has arrived for our public services. And we've got a Prime Minister who has curled up in a ball and gone into hibernation. <laughs> if, if he can't act on behalf of patients or nurses or everyone who wants these strikes called off, then surely the whole country is entitled to ask, what is the point of him and what is the point of the government he's supposed to be leading? Mr Speaker, he talks about COVID not having an impact. Ambulance waiting times for Category 1. Category 1 ambulance waiting times in February of 2020 were actually completely on target, Mr Speaker. COVID has had an impact. And that's why, that's why, that's why, as, as the Chief Executive of the NHS has acknowledged, this government is serious about its commitment to prioritise the NHS. But, Mr Speaker, let's just have a look at the NHS in Labour-run Wales, shall we? The worst A&E times in the country, Mr Speaker. So that was the Prime Minister and his dispatch box debate between himself and the Leader of the Opposition. And... As you can actually hear in that answer, whilst it makes for good backbench-boosting bravado, it's not actually an answer to the question. Keir Starmer saying that uh, the uh, the government thinks everything is fine, pretending that everything is fine, because winter has arrived 
for the public services and the Prime Minister's gone into hibernation. The government's saying, well, no, 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 no. You didn't mention COVID. We didn't shy away from COVID having been an issue. Uh, if we listen back to dispatches, uh, not dispatches, uh, to sort of, well, dispatch box conversations between various prime ministers, Keir Starmer, remarkably onto his third prime minister, didn't think that was going to happen when he got into office, um, and Keir Starmer, he has not shied away from COVID being a factor. But that King report does suggest there are serious failings from the government. And it's it's not very hard to put two and two together and come up with four. Uh, as well as this, Liberal Democrat leader Sir Ed Davey was talking in a question that he got about the dreadful cancer backlog. He asked the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, to guarantee that this would not get worse because 40%, according to Sir Ed, uh, 40% of cancer patients now wait more than two months for treatment. Rishi Sunak, again, not really answering the question. Cancer treatment rates in the most recent months for which we have data are now back at pre-pandemic levels. Cool. Back at pre-pandemic levels is great. But before the pandemic, it was still below the government's own targets. So that's another question relating to the, the health uh, to the health department from uh, someone there that Rishi Sunak just, again, not answering. But let's let's go back to the, the wider issue of strikes because there are big plans, big plans, for these tough new anti-strike laws. Rishi Sunak said he's working on those tough laws. If union leaders continue to be unreasonable, then it is my duty, the Prime Minister said, to take action to protect the lives and livelihoods of the British public. These laws will not be in effect to help with the current industrial action. Um, we've seen tens of, of unions thinking, right, look, this is now the time to talk about industrial action and to ballot our members on it. And the government's response is not to sit at the table and talk. It is to sit at the cabinet table and draft legislation. Doesn't quite seem like this is uh, very much how, how, how things get sorted. Transport Secretary Mark Harper was able to tell MPs last week that the bill that's currently going through Parliament, this, uh, this bill introduced to Parliament, which is, uh, as I, I get the bill up on my screen, the Transport Strikes Brackets Minimum Service Level bills introduced by Anne-Marie Trevelyan back in October. Um, so this isn't even the the tough new laws which you're talking about. This is the sort of Liz Truss era laws introduced by Liz Truss's transport secretary. Crikey, we are in a mess if we're now praising Liz Truss's laws that she's trying to put through for um, for trying to actually do something. A second reading for which hasn't even been announced yet, despite a first reading on the 20th of October 2022. Um, the bill, as introduced, 
was on the 20th of October, Bill 168-2022-2023, uh, In if you want to look at it through in Hansard. And again, the Transport Strikes Minimum Service Level Bills, it was introduced in Parliament, great, but that legislation is not on their way through. Um, also, the Prime Minister has refused to rule out a ban on strike action by emergency services. Now, this is a very difficult issue because whilst emergency services are often some of the most under pressure and the most uh, underappreciated sectors of the workforce, they are emergency services, which means that there is a much finer line that ambulance staff have to draw, for example, if they want to go out on strike, than it does for um, I don't know, railway workers. Because it is, it is very easy to see the horrific real-world consequences if an A&E is shut, for example, than it is if you can't get from, I don't know, Hull to Harrogate. Now, that's not to say that these rail strikes haven't been disruptive, but that is the point of a strike. It is easier, however, for a rail strike to be disruptive, but not destructive than it is for an emergency services strike. The The government have been working on these stricter laws, but um, this is what the Labour Party call grandstanding, sitting on their hands, uh, rather than actually getting round a table and resolving issues. And indeed, the TUC General Secretary, Frances O'Grady, who, gosh, I remember all those years ago when she was speaking on behalf of the Remain campaign, um, she gave a pretty good debate performance, so I wouldn't mind uh, seeing a little bit more and hearing what she has to say over these recent events. I haven't heard much from her. Uh, the TUC General Secretary says, Rather than attempting cheap political pot shots, the government should be getting round the table and negotiating with unions about pay. Now, this is very much uh, not quite how the government has responded to this. Yes, they have been, in some areas, getting round the table to talk about things. We saw that with the health secretary, Steve Barclay, who was getting round the table to talk about um, to talk about issues. Just wasn't getting around the table to talk about pay, which is the key issue there. Um, very much not how things should be going. Ideally, we don't have these strikes. Ideally, we uh, have these issues resolved in a timely manner way before uh, everything hits the fan, to, to pardon the expression. But no, we are once again stuck with strikes that don't help anyone Far from far from being this ideal, ah oh yes, everybody on a, in a union wants to strike. No, of course they don't. Otherwise they wouldn't work in that sector. If the government wants to keep talking about how it's such an opportunities-led economy, then they would understand that, you know, if, if people really, all they wanted to do was disrupt a sector, they don't go and work in it. So... To, to put that at the, the feet of, of these striking workers is incredibly disingenuous. 
But the real issues here are, yes, there are there is going to be serious disruption. Serious disruption. But this is not something taken lightly. This is something taken after full and sort of exhaustive efforts because there have to be now thanks to the trade unions act of 2016 uh it's really almost a herculean effort just to get a a strike to happen in the first place let alone a national strike which we saw from the UCU and from all of these these other unions so this is not something that can be entered into on a whim. This isn't Arthur Scargill taking out his, his union members on strike because it's a political act. This is this is someone really or oh, this is a, a group of people really feeling that look, this is just not how things go. This is not how things should go. And uh, there is a real change in uh, in the the sentiments of a lot of people around union activity here. This this has been the most effective piece of, of union campaigning, I think, probably in my lifetime. Certainly, that I've been aware of in my lifetime. So, on that. We're going to go to a, a song break. And whilst I, I don't know whether or not this will end up being a positive or a negative, these, these most recent sets of strikes for the unions or for the government or for whomever, uh, I do know that the entire situation is just a little bit of a basket case. So we're going to go to a song break with a bit of Green Day. Have a listen. I'll see you on the other side. There we go. Dreadlock Holiday 10cc, uh, which followed... Of course, Basket Case by Green Day. Uh, if you listen to this on the podcast after it's gone out and you're wondering, why am I talking about songs? Well, that's because you're not listening to it live on Expression FM, but these lovely people who I'm currently talking to are. So thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, if you want to hear all the music, all the songs that I do play, you have to tune in live for Expression FM because I can't put it on Spotify as the full radio show because of licensing restrictions. So there we go. Now, also, that bit of dreadlock holiday, a little bit of, uh, well, I do love cricket, no matter what 10cc say. Um, and so do the England Test Match team at the moment. A storming victory over Pakistan in an amazing, historic first Test Series in Pakistan for over a decade. Um, what what a what a fantastic result for the England team. They've won two matches so far there's only one to go which means England have won uh, that that fantastic second test the Ravel Pindi pitch um, what a what an amazing turn up for the books that was in the final stages of of the first day of the final day sorry of the first test in Royal Pindi that was amazing uh, scoring 1,700 runs over five days, the most in history for a test played over a maximum of five days. As well as that, uh, you had the second test in Multan, which 
the first series victory in Pakistan for England in 22 years. England winning by just 26 runs on day four. Pakistan were closing in on a great chase. Just couldn't quite make it. Not that England mind, because it's a serious victory. It's historic. Right, now that's my bit of good news. Unfortunately, that means, because I'm saying that was, it means that bit of good news is now uh, is now over. Because we're going to have to talk about something much, uh, much worse than than cricket. Uh, and even if you don't like cricket, um, this is a, a an objectively horrific story. Um, four people are dead uh, overnight or in, in the early morning after a migrant boat crossing the English Channel ran into extreme difficulties. Uh, Nick Erdley, BBC reporter, says a person close to the situation has told him 43 people have been saved, more than 30 rescued directly from the water. Uh, a major search and rescue operation was launched in that stretch of water between Kent and Calais in the freezing conditions we saw overnight. A government spokesperson has said authorities were alerted at five minutes past three in the morning to a small boat in difficulty off the coast of Dungeness, which is 30 miles west of Dover. Suella Braverman called these uh, the days that we dread. Uh, Rishi Sunak saying uh, he expresses sorrow at the tragic loss of human life. Uh, in her statement to the Commons, Suella Braverman said the search and rescue operation is still ongoing and has spoken to Border Force officials about the tragedy. The UK Coast Guard, French Navy, RNLI, Air Ambulance all sent out there to help with the situation with the fishing boat in the area and Coast Guard helicopters from Lid and Leon Solent also involved. Uh, this boat is believed to have been an inflatable, um, which, as you may well be familiar with, there is sort of a PVC fabric which is then inflated with a lifeline around the boat of, of rope that people can hang on to with a motor affixed to the rear. Now, these boats can be up to seven metres in length, but when you're crossing one of the busiest shipping lanes and come up against a container ship of 366 metres in length, you don't stand a chance. Now, overnight, the temperatures dropped to one degree C, with it likely to have been much colder out at sea. A yellow weather warning for ice was in place across Kent at the time, and this event occurred uh, pretty much on the UK-French maritime border, according to a BBC estimation, based on the location of rescue boats and helicopters. Now, between Friday and Sunday, 460 people made the journey from France to Kent in small boats, and nearly 45,000 people have made the same journey this year. As we close out 2022, we seem to be in a very similar position to last year. In November 2021, there was a horrible, fatal incident which cost the lives of 27 people. Maybe 28, I'm not quite certain. I think it's 28 now. Um, the worst migrant mass drowning in the channel ever recorded. Um, now, I, I, I don't know how we're still in that situation, considering... Uh, the government's tough talk on the action. Surely tough talk obviously gets things done, right? Well, no, of course it doesn't. Um, so Ella Bravman can send her heartfelt thoughts 
to those involved. Politicians can send their condolences, but we have a fundamentally broken migration system. The Archbishop of Canterbury said he's praying for the victims of today's terrible events, uh, tweeting that debates about asylum seekers are, quote, not about statistics, but precious human lives, with Tim Nower Hilton from the Charity Refugee Action called the tragedy predictable and inevitable, saying more people would die trying to reach safety if the government did not create more routes for people trying to claim asylum. And this is the point I want to talk about for a little bit today, because Rishi Sunak has been putting forward uh, big flagship migration plans. Prime Minister's immigration speech coming three years after his party won a general election, telling of people a Conservative government would take control of immigration. The government's flagship immigration bill, launched in Parliament just eight months ago, promised to fix our broken asylum system. But now, Rishi Sunak feels the need to put things into place again. The Prime Minister is saying that they will establish a new, permanent, unified, small boats operational command, with Rishi Sunak saying, the UK's policing of the channel has been too fragmented, with different people doing different things, being pulled in different directions. He wants to have a small boats operational command to bring together these military and civilian teams under one umbrella with intelligence interception, sort of enforcement and how they deal with things all under one roof using, and I quote here, all available technology, including drones, and then prosecute more gang-led boat pilots. However, it is completely disingenuous to say that this isn't already being done in some shape or form. The UK actually has a dedicated commander of operations against small boats. Additional to that, the government clearly wants more prosecutions as a result of this, uh, because they're saying they want to prosecute more. Or at least I'm assuming that's what that means. Otherwise, the government really does have quite simply no clue as to what they're actually trying to say. The government wants more prosecutions, but when the courts are backed up to an extent like this, how and when and where will all these extra cases be heard? If we're prosecuting everyone that lands on uh, sort of Margate Beach, there's going to be no room to be tough on crime, as the Conservatives have been so keen to say they will be, for anything else that happens in the United Kingdom. We already know the Home Secretary thinks the immigration system is broken. Don't break our legal system just to fix an immigration system, although there's already a strong argument that the legal system is either very much broken or about to shatter as it is. The Prime Minister also saying these extra resources will free up immigration officers to go back to enforcement, which will in turn allow us to increase raids on illegal working by 50%. When? How? Over what time is this increased rate on illegal working going to cut by 50, or going to increase, sorry, by 50%? How is that actually going to happen? Um, as well as this, we've seen in the past the heavy risks attached to these raids. The Windrush scandal revealed how people who were British or had a complete settled right to remain in Britain had their lives upended and destroyed. Some actually dying, some going to a country that was never their home, just because the Home Office thought they were illegal immigrants, or they had no active record of their true status. Now this cost people bank accounts, jobs, homes, 
There's been a progress report recently on correcting the mistakes of Windrush. That has recently told the Home Office just this year the problem has not been fixed. So I do not want to see these raids on so-called illegal working and, and other areas increase by 50% if there is still the same level of risk that another Windrush situation will happen. Because we can talk all we want about the, the human cost and how um, how things how, how things are are horrible on on the border. We talk about how we want Britain to be an aspiration nation. We want Britain to be a place where people can come to. But when they get here, they don't want to have to be under threat of being forced away. How can that be right? The Home Office says there's a range of safeguards that have been introduced to this data sharing process, saying there's an improved customer contact and resolution service for those who feel they may have been incorrectly impacted. It's a very simple solution. Don't, pardon my French, cock up massively enough to incorrectly impact them in the first place. And that will happen if we end up increasing these raids on illegal working by 50% whilst those same problems exist. Let's talk about the, the most recent buzzword for the Prime Minister, Albanians. Uh, he says that over the coming months, thousands of Albanians will be returned home. Now, this is funny because ministers can sign an order that declares a particular country to be safe. Since 2003, Albania has been on that list of safe countries. That means that anybody who claims asylum or protection can be quickly and swiftly sent back to Albania. Now, the government is claiming that Albanian criminal gangs have been abusing the process where people claim protection under the modern slavery legislation. It wants to close loopholes. Put that evidence forward then. Put that evidence forward. Um, there is very disputed evidence whether or not Albanian crime gangs are actually abusing this process. So put it on the table. Let the, uh, the parliamentary system work and judge for itself whether or not they are abusing this loophole. If there is a loophole, close the loophole. But for the love of God, if there isn't a loophole, don't try and create one just so you have something to close. Because we've seen that in a cynical way before. We've also seen people closing loopholes that aren't actually loopholes, but were actually legal routes. Just to try and say, look, we've closed this route because it was a loophole. But it was never a loophole in the first place. It was an actual tunnel that was put there specifically to say, look, come to the United Kingdom. Come to the United Kingdom because we're a great place to be. We are open Britain, new Britain. Um, there are all these fantastic opportunities. And we'd love you to be here. As well as this, the Prime Minister had to admit in Parliament that Germany, which takes far more asylum seekers than the UK, I think it's very clear to see, rejects almost every Albanian applicant. Now as well, just supposing the government fast-tracks all of these cases because thousands of Albanians to return home is a big commitment. Labour has long advocated this fast-tracking. But removing these people takes resources, resources that are currently, according to the Home Office, already 
under intense pressure just to work out how and where people are getting to the Kent coast and to stop them. And that if those uh, sort of immigration officers are freed up, won't go on illegal working, uh, sorry, will go on illegal working. So if they are going to now be suddenly redeployed to take Albanians home, which I'd imagine is going to be a big task if there are quite so many there, um, then where are those people who are going to actually be doing the increased raids on illegal working? The government's tying itself in knots here. As well as this, let's go down to some other of these points. A, a big talking point earlier in the year was the fact that um, illegal migrants were allegedly being put up in these five-star accommodations and these, uh, these what's, uh, what's the word? Um, these, these hotels that were... The, we're calling it the the sort of Rwandan Ritz and all that. The government has said they're moving 10,000 people out of expensive hotel accommodation into low-cost sites like disused holiday parks and former student halls. G- great. I mean, it might surprise you to hear this. I've, I've got n- nothing against utilising areas that, that can actively accommodate asylum seekers and people waiting for decisions um, in in areas that can accommodate them that cost less for the taxpayer. The problem is, um, what in the world is going on that means they're going into disused holiday parks? Former student halls and, and disused holiday parks sound... And I mean, this this could be an oversimplification, but it sounds like it's those sort of areas you see on ghost hunting channels where someone breaks past a disused chicken wire fence and just cuts their way through to prove whether or not the lights have been flicking on and off by themselves. That doesn't sound like a very humane way of dealing with uh, asylum seekers. Now, if they are very much up to scratch and provide people with a a general basic level of comfort that is humane, that is in an area that that allows us to save a little bit of money, allows us to actually provide the services that we are saying we will provide for them, then there is a sort of minimal problem. Oh yeah, except there is always significant local opposition before you move hundreds, maybe thousands of asylum seekers into one local area. Imagine you had uh, a student residence just down the road from where you were that had closed down and was now sort of sitting empty and the government said that we want to put a thousand asylum seekers in there. It's going to change the makeup of the local area without a doubt and that is why a lot of local areas don't support it. It's called sort of, sometimes it's called nimbyism, not in my backyard. We've seen this a lot we're sort of housing targets. We've seen this a lot with um, onshore wind farms. Now, each centre would need planning permission. MPs won't want to have it in their area because they worry it'll lose them votes. MPs are already worried about losing their seats. They don't want a local campaign saying, oh, look, he gave or she gave or they gave this housing block away to people who aren't even British when people in our constituency need homes. 
That's an argument that you can just hear being made already, because there was a plan in North Yorkshire to move migrants into dedicated centres, move these asylum seekers into dedicated centres for processing. The local community was on, on sort of backlash duty. And the scheme fell apart because both Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak were asked directly in the question and uh, they refused to back that North Yorkshire plan. Does that mean, after Rishi Sunak's speech here, that it's back on? Who knows? Who knows? Another thing is, however, that whilst they're saying they're moving up to 10,000 people out of expensive hotel accommodation into low-cost sites like disuse holiday parks and former student halls, all quote, by the way, there are more than 100,000 people in the asylum support system waiting for a decision on their cases. And there are 37,000 in hotels, because the Home Office has run out of homes to put them in. And the only reason it's running out of homes is because there is such extreme backlog in the system. It doesn't take a genius to work out that just moving people to a, a cheaper accommodation won't be solving this issue. And uh, let's talk about this backlog, actually. Because Rishi Sunak says they, aim, they expect sorry, to abolish the backlog of initial asylum decisions by the end of next year. Now, Home Office staff are taking longer and longer to deal with cases. Since Brexit, there have been a number of cases it won't officially deal with, so they now remain in limbo after a post-Brexit rule change, declared that anybody coming from the European Union could be blocked from making an asylum claim and sent back to the safe country they had come from. But, don't forget, the UK has no returns agreement with the European Union. Um, and this means the challenge is enormous. It is enormous. In 2004, Tony Blair set a far less compla- uh, less ambitious target just to say in, the, I think it was 18 months, they would complete more cases in a given period than new ones joined the pile. It took the Home Office until 2006 to even come close to hitting that target. Linked to that, from early next year, the government says they will introduce new legislation to make unambiguously clear that if you enter the UK illegally, you should not be able to remain here. This means people could be detained and swiftly returned to their home country or elsewhere, which means, in theory, Rwanda or an EU destination. Now, as I said before, there is no returns agreement with the European Union. Um, And... The UN Refugee Agency has also said the government's proposals would deny people access to the legal asylum system just because of how they arrived. Um, there's also speculation that the detained fast track, DFT, a Labour government scheme suspended back in 2015 after critics won a legal battle to prove it was unfair, is going to be resurrected. Now, supporters of this say it was very valuable in weeding out unfounded claims quickly, but also the critics say, well, look, it was dealing with claims so quickly, he didn't actually know whether they were founded or unfounded. Oh, also, by the way, the Rwanda scheme is still trundling its way through the courts, and there is no deal to send those people back to the European Union. That uh, EU returns agreement was not included in the Brexit agreement. So that's going to be very difficult. All I'm trying to say by going through this is that, yes, we have a massive, massive question of what should happen in the channel. 
But these answers from the Prime Minister and from the government and from the Home Secretary are just not up to scratch. They aren't. We're talking about trying to put a, a plaster. No, actually, worse than that. We're, we, are, we are trying to say, look, go take some cowpaw and lie down in the dark room when you've just broken both your legs. And it's not going to work. There needs to be wholesale root and branch reform to the UK immigration system. And one of the ways that people have been calling for for quite a while is to, and I've made this point on a number of occasions, is to almost outsource the migration process. Now, this sounds weird, but bear with me. Hold on. Currently, if you want to be an asylum seeker, you basically have to set foot in England before you can make your claim and say, look, I'm in danger, please keep me here. Which, of course, encourages people to make this horrendously dangerous journey across the channel because it will not have failed to escape you, I hope. Britain is an island and you can't get to it without crossing the sea in some way, shape or form. Either you have to uh, hide in a lorry going through the Channel Tunnel, although now it looks like we've been stamping out on that successfully, so people have to now uh, hook themselves into these dinghies and make the treacherous journey across one of the busiest per, uh, per square foot shipping lane in the world. But if you could just go to the British embassy in your home country and say, I am in danger. Process my application, please. I want to come to the United Kingdom. Rather than having to make that journey on the off chance you might be let in when you get there, you could make a formal journey after a formal application without having to risk being detained in every country that you stop in on the way, without having to run the gauntlet of smuggling gangs and international criminal rings. What's wrong with that idea? Clearly, of course, there's, there's got to be something wrong with it, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. And it's probably to do with uh, the workload of consular and embassy staff that's already quite high. Can we afford to put people in those situations out in different embassies? I don't know. I'm not a government minister, but I'm amazed people aren't talking about it more. Something people are talking about more, though, as we move away from the immigration story, is Dominic Raab, the Justice Secretary and Deputy Prime Minister. Five further complaints have now been raised about Dominic Raab's behaviour as a minister, which means a total of eight complaints are now being investigated by Adam Tolley Casey. Dominic Raab was reappointed by Rishi Sunak as Justice Secretary and Deputy Prime Minister in October and has always denied allegations of bullying, with a source close to Dominic Raab saying, There is a zero tolerance of bullying across the civil service. The Deputy Prime Minister leads a professional department driving forward major reforms where civil servants are valued and the level of ambition is high. There is an independent investigation underway that's being overseen by the Cabinet Office and it would be inappropriate to comment further on issues relating to it until it is completed. Now, the official spokesperson for the Prime Minister claims these uh, allegations relate to Dominic Raab's tenure as Justice Secretary under Boris Johnson, not under Rishi Sunak. 
There are three complaints already under investigation related to his time as Foreign Secretary and Brexit Secretary, as well as at the MOJ as a junior minister. But Labour are now calling for Dominic Raab to be suspended. Keir Starmer said it's pretty shocking that no action has been taken against Mr Raab. Starmer also said it was a consequence of having a weak Prime Minister that Mr Raab continued to serve in government whilst complaints about his behaviour are being investigated. But Labour aren't the only party to call for Dominic Raab to be suspended. The Liberal Democrats are calling for him to step down whilst these complaints are investigated, with Daisy Cooper, the deputy leader of the party, saying the trickle of allegations about Dominic Raab has turned into a flood and his position is becoming increasingly untenable. Asked about how Mr Raab can continue in a cabinet role whilst there are these severe allegations against him, the spokesperson for the Prime Minister said, we think it's right there is an independent process that the investigator looks into these claims thoroughly before coming to a view with the investigation set to be concluded swiftly, according to the Prime Minister's spokesperson. Now, the the reason Mr Tolly KC is um, going to be investigating this is because there is no ethics advisor, no advisor of ministerial interest. That's been vacant since the resignation of Lord Gait back in June so Adam Tolley KC has been appointed by the Prime Minister. He's a commercial and employment law specialist. And whilst a lawyer will report to the Prime Minister, it is the Prime Minister who gets to make the final judgment on whether Dominic Raab's conduct breached the ministerial code and whether he should be sacked. The karate black belt back in the cabinet just to have eight allegations levelled at him. Maybe the Conservative Member of Parliament for Isha and Walton should think about walking his way out the door. You never know. Who knows, actually? Because I haven't heard the particular allegations levelled at him. I, I know there are severe allegations of bullying. I haven't heard the the full details of the complaint. But it does look like this steady drip, drip, drip is continuing to serve as a minister. <laughs> oh, I couldn't resist. Um, Dominic Raab, like him or not, he's not been a particularly effective minister. So I don't quite understand how Rishi Sunak has to fight so hard for him. I guess it's because he's such a key ally. Right, let's round up a couple more stories before we start thinking Christmas, we start thinking festive and we start having a little bit of fun because I do want to have that to sort of bring to an end this run of show. So I'm sorry, we're going to have about five, ten more minutes on, on these new stories and then it's time to get those Christmas requests in because uh, it really is going to be a bit of a Christmas party here on Politics Unboxed. Um, a reminder, you can only hear those if you've been listening live, so I'm sorry with uh, how how things are going if you're listening to this on a podcast. But you'll hear all the content, you'll hear it all, uh, you'll hear all about how things are going, just not the songs, which is a shame. But... Let's talk about some of these other stories because China 
Chinese diplomats have left the United Kingdom after a Manchester protest attack. Two months after violence at the Manchester consulate, China has removed six officials from Britain, including one of its most senior UK diplomats. The UK had requested the officials waive their right to diplomatic immunity in order to allow detectives to question them about the October incident, with Foreign Secretary James Cleverly expressing a disappointment that none of the six will now face justice. The allegations around October uh, and this this Manchester incident include allegations levelled at Consul General Shen Zhuyan, who has had to deny beating a protester after Bob Chan, a Hong Konger and pro-democracy protester, was injured after being dragged onto the consulate grounds and beaten by men on October 16th. Mr. Shigan, uh, who was in charge of China's Manchester outpost, denied attacking Mr. Chan, although he has been identified in photographs and accused of doing so by a senior Conservative member of Parliament. But he then later told reporters he'd just been trying to protect his colleagues, adding that Bob Chan had been, quote, abusing my country, my leader, I think it's my duty. China's decision to remove these these diplomats has been seen as a bit of a a sort of attempt to avoid tit-for-tat exchanges between China and the UK and an attempt to de-escalate the dispute. Um, But it it does seem how... It does seem confusing, really, how China thinks that not letting their officials face justice is going to be an attempt to de-escalate the dispute. Um, The UK officials made clear to the Chinese embassy uh, that if diplomats, if those diplomats rather, did not agree to take part in the police escalation, there would have been further consequences, which could have included those six being declared persona non grata and expelled from the United Kingdom. Now, James Cleverly, says China's removal of the six demonstrates the seriousness of the UK's response to the incident, saying, and I quote, we will continue on the world stage and domestically to abide by the rule of law and we expect others to do likewise. He also submitted a written statement to the House of Commons where he said, I'm disappointed that these individuals will not be interviewed or face justice. Nonetheless, it is right that those responsible for the disgraceful scenes in Manchester are no longer or will shortly cease to be consular staff accredited to the UK. So that is part of of, of this story. Um, Sir Ian Duncan-Smith, former Tory leader, has said the UK should have formally declared those diplomats persona non grata, saying the flagrant assault on a peaceful democracy campaigner in Manchester needs more than allowing those responsible to leave the UK uncharged and with their heads held high. Letting China take them back isn't justice. Um, now, there were up to 40 protesters gathered outside the consulate on the, the date of this attack or, or this uh, alleged uh, assault of Mr... Uh, I've, I've forgotten his name already, Mr Chan. Um, but the Greater Manchester Police said a group of men then came out of the building where a man was dragged into the consulate grounds and assaulted. Due to our fears for the safety of the man, officers intervened and removed the victim from the consulate grounds. So there we are. The six have been left, uh, sorry, have been asked to leave the UK 
but not by the UK, by China. Let's have a look now across the pond because Ron DeSantis is, um, well, actually looking like uh, he's got some more momentum because a Suffolk University USA Today poll uh, has shown that the most conservative voters or the most Republican-leaning voters in the USA would now prefer DeSantis over Donald Trump as their 2024 GOP presidential nominee. By a 56 to 33% margin, these voters picked Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump, who is the only one of the two to have formally launched his 2024 campaign. David Paleologos, the director of the Suffolk University Political Research Centre, said DeSantis outpolls Trump not only amongst the general electorate, but also amongst those Republican-leaning voters who have been the former president's base. Republicans and conservative independents increasingly want Trumpism without Trump. Now, as well as this, a second bit of bad news for Donald Trump from this poll, Joe Biden has higher approval ratings than Donald Trump, according to this Suffolk University Political Research Centre poll. Um, But according to the nationwide survey, Ron DeSantis leads Joe Biden in a hypothetical election amongst the the general electorate. Now, Ron DeSantis was re-elected as governor of Florida in November, winning by the largest margin of any Floridian governor in 40 years. The day after, Donald Trump lashed out and said um, if DeSantis runs, he could hurt himself very badly, telling that to Fox News. But this poll suggests that Donald Trump has a 30% approval rating, Joe Biden a 46%, but that over 60% of voters don't want either of them to be on the ballot in 2024. Wowie. The political sands are shifting. It looks like DeSantis is on the up, Trump on the way down, and Joe Biden, well, whilst he may be unpopular, or majority unpopular, who's actually going to take the Democratic nomination off him? Who in the federally recognisable Democratic Party is able to take the nomination away from him? Janet Yellich won't run, Treasury Secretary. She probably shouldn't run, anyway. Uh, Who else have we got? Pete Buttigieg, who ran last time around. Well, again, he's still got about the same level of, um, what's the word? Public facial recognition. Who else is there? Julian Castro, not particularly popular outside of blue states, might not win the red states. Stacey Abrams, a name that always gets mentioned, still hasn't won an election since she was a a Georgia state representative. Not a congressional representative from the state of Georgia, but a member of the Georgia State House of Representatives. Who else? Beto O'Rourke can't win in Texas, so how can he win federally? Because he's from Texas, he keeps running and he keeps losing. There isn't someone there easily to take over from Joe Biden. If they find someone, well, maybe the president steps aside. But as it looks, it looks like it's going to be 
a Joe Biden versus Ron DeSantis 2024 presidential election. And now, I said I'd, I'd talk to you about my, uh, my favourite sort of political stories of the year. And, well, I think there are some... There are some good stories that have happened all around. We've been able to bring you some great stories over on our website, which again, www.politicsunboxpodcast.wordpress.com. Um, my favourite one that I wrote from there was actually on the Brazilian presidential election, uh, where Lula da Silva is going to be the next duly elected president of Brazil. That's beating Jair Bolsonaro, the sort of military-backed former president. A former president versus a former president. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Anyway, what else were we able to have a look at? The Fate of Foreign Aid. Great article written by uh, Taylor Norris talking about how Britain's soft power is affected by how much uh, we can put into the uh, into the pockets of of those around the world to help with these real issues of um, of international need. Really, we've had a, an article written by Dayan in the last few weeks uh, where Wales has been examined. How long are they still going to be in the union? A fantastic article from Lydia talking about the the rise of the American right, uh, where they're making a biblical battle out of the midterms. But no, my my favourite uh, has got to be the article I wrote about Lula and uh, and Bolsonaro in that Brazilian election. Not to say there aren't many more, but if you get to the uh, the end of that Lula Bolsonaro article there's a picture of a puppy yeah you get a prize Uh, as well as that we were able to make some great steps forward Uh, James Ford uh, a former advisor to Boris Johnson wrote a a brilliant article for us Tory trauma temporary turmoil or terminal tales spin Uh, and aside from just the wonderful alliteration this was written just in the run up to um, the sort of leadership election where Liz Truss was able to win. Uh, Sorry, uh, just after Liz Truss was forced out. So many Tory leadership elections this year, it's difficult to get them uh, all in order. Uh, And he was able to give us a a peek behind the veil of, of how things are looking inside the Conservative Party. If you want to hear more from Politics Unboxed, then you absolutely can. There'll be a special episode of the podcast coming out on Christmas Day itself. So keep your ears ready for that. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and search for the Politics Unboxed podcast or just Politics Unboxed. We're on Spotify. We are on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts. Wherever you get them, we should be there. Again, go to www.politicsunboxpodcast.wordpress.com for all of our information, all of our abouts pages, uh, the the blog posts, the all the content uh, that you love, that you want to hear about. 
all our links to our podcasts are also on there with Spotify, uh, with Radio Public, which is a, a, another way you can listen. And there's an RSS feed right down at the bottom, which is a great way to get all of your news from Politics Unboxed. Right. This is me wrapping up the political part of the show today. So thank you to everybody for listening about all of these wonderful political stories. I hope you've enjoyed being with me for two hours on a Wednesday all the way through this term so far. But you know what's coming. You know what's coming. Surely, surely you know what's coming. Because whilst you can get in touch at politics.unboxed on Instagram, politics.unboxed on Facebook, at politics.u on Twitter, that's the letter U, or politics.unboxed at outlook.com for an email. Oh, McCartney, wonderful Christmas time, and what a song that is. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it, it pains me to say that we are coming towards the last few minutes of... Um, of Politics Unboxed on Expression FM for 2022. And I know these last sort of 40 minutes or so haven't exactly been politicsy, but they've been my show. I can I can do it whichever way around we need it. Um, but it's, as always, been a great pleasure to be talking to you all through the magical medium that is radio. And I very much hope that you'll be back in the new year where I will be back on the airwaves. I can't promise you which time yet because we don't know what the schedule is going to look like. But I can promise you that Politics Unboxed will be back. So keep an eye on the Instagram at politics.unboxed, on the Facebook Politics Unboxed, on the Twitter at politicsu. That's the letter U, not the word. Um, If you want, you can email politics.unboxed at outlook.com or you can go to www.politicsunboxedpodcast.wordpress.com But as I roll towards the, the final few minutes and seconds of me being so on the radio this year this is my last radio show of the year as well I won't be around for the news hour on Friday I won't be doing my Sunday show on, well, Sunday uh, great detective work if you figured that one out. Um, but I want to say thank you very much for tuning in. It's always great to speak to you each and every week. I hope to see you all again soon for the next time I'm on the air. Have a look on your podcast providers for Politics Unboxed because there will be a special Christmas episode and there may be other things dropping across the Christmas and festive period. Thank you for listening. I will see you very soon. Have a wonderful Christmas, a very happy New Year, and uh, much in the style of our ex-media Christmas ball, there's only really one way to sign off. Because Christmas is meant to be a bit of a fairy tale. And where else to spend that fairy tale than in New York? I'll see you next year. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. It was Christmas Eve, babe In the drunk tank An old man said to me